Welcome back to Rambling Ambos. My name is Carl, and on the show today, handover howlers. Jen, Ev, and I kick things off with those ego sinking moments at the triage desk. In the debrief, though, we're discussing whether mechanical CPR devices have a role to play in pre hospital care, and also how communication affects our practice and what areas we need to improve on. For the latest news, though, we're crossing to Bob Oakley in our new studio before jumping into the clinical corner with Evan. His case conundrum today, focusing on competency and capacity of the patient. You can send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, but stand by, it's time for the debrief. This is Rambling Ambos. Guys, hello again, Jen, Aviv, how are you? I'm great, and how are you, Carl? Not too bad, and Evan over here to my right, how are you, mate? Very well, mate, yourself? Yeah, not too bad, great to see you both, guys. It's great to be back. um, It is, it is, this is our third episode now, Um, you know, don't mind that pilot stuff up at the very beginning there, (laughs) Uh, but this is our third episode. Fantastic. Um, And guys, exciting news. What's that, mate? Well, we now have gone more global than we were last time. <laughs> more global. How, how more global? Well, we now have a listener, a listener in Singapore, Woohoo! in India, Woohoo! in the UK, Fantastic. New Zealand, mm-hmm. and our one listener still in the US, uh, right. who's come back for a second time. He's listened to both, epi- <laughs> or he or she, Excellent. in Michigan, Welcome US. Back. Yeah. So, Michigan. how did you? How do you well, find that this, out? It's this um, data that we use here on the on the Podbean websi- website. So, um, yeah. So yeah. he's uh, the, so next week we'll know your street address, your yeah. birth, your well, social security number. We will find number. you. I kind of want to know what he looks like. <laughs> and or thank she. you. She. Yes. she, he or she. Or they. Is that a bit weird? Let's be inclusive. It could be a group of paramedics listening. <laughs> Oh, oh, through one set of that's lunches. annoying. I'll yeah. have to ask them if they could each listen on their own device yeah. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. to boost up just the numbers a bit. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> well, um, actually, talking about our previous episode, uh, we did a case review just at the end in our clinical corner. We did. Uh, I had a bit of feedback um, with the case I brought up with the um, elderly man that was uh, peeing a lot, couldn't stop, um, extremely thirsty. Yep. Um, I forgot to mention his BGL because a few people were like, oh, was he hyperglycemic or was okay. he you know, having mm-hmm. some sort of event in that sense? Uh, look, his sugar was normal. So unfortunately, it's not really a big reveal or <laughs> no. anything exciting. But yeah. Did we ever find out? We don't know what happened to him. Uh, no, I don't. No. I think he must have gone home after that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, Kept him alive, of course. Like Classic yeah, club. Yeah. But um, yeah, look, last week uh, we kicked off the show with uh, the top five caller statements of the week. And so we want to put out to you all, if you have any good... Um, caller statements or any any uh, discussion ideas that you want us to talk about, uh, um, send us an email at ramblingambos at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook, send us a message there. Um, but today we're doing something a little different. We're kicking it off with the handover howlers. I love these. Mm. This is my favorite. Now we've Classics. all, <laughs> all, all shit our pants <laughs> at triage when things don't always oh. go the way they planned um so ev yeah <laughs> what have we've you all done us today we've all done it uh yeah so my handover howler uh was in early in the piece i think i was probably in my first or second year uh i believe we attended a 25 year old male who had a head injury from a tree branch and a decreased loc and it was during the handover to the resus team that i essentially said something along the lines of the patient was arousable to voice to which <laughs> everyone just sort of yeah not rousable, a rousable. I'm just That's imagining right. you coming in and going, hello, can you hear me? He's like, mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keep talking. Huge <laughs> yeah. So a lot of awkward looks from the staff and I was like, wait, what did I just say? 
Oh, yeah. so didn't live that down Ooh, for a while. Mm, love it. Classic. Mm. Well, look, I mean, my one, and I feel like this goes for everybody out there that works as a, you know, a paramedic. Um, I feel like we've all been in this situation. But, you know, you, you arrive at the emergency and um, generally there's no one ever there. But this particular day there was bed block galore and there were so many paramedics Everybody around. was there. Oh. <laughs> and um, so I don't know how it works where, where you are, but generally um, you the treating officer goes to the triage nurse, hands over whilst your partner does another set of observations on the patient um, behind you. And, um, you know, you do a blood pressure... Uh, on scene, it's like, you know, 100, 105, good radial. And you're like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, cool. You do one on the way, palpate it. Oh, yeah, it's still, yeah, it's still around 100. And then you get into triage and <laughs> you're handing over and you just turn around and look at the machine and it's like 85. And you're like, oh, um, do you mind just popping it on the other arm? Let's just do yeah. the other arm. <laughs> Recheck. They do the other arm. It's like 75. It's like, oh. <laughs> Just go back to the other arm and then anyway, we're now wheeling into recess, mm-hmm. bang up to 105. You're like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> He's just trying to make I it look it. bad. Yeah, exactly. You knew as soon as you roll into... So it wasn't like that earlier. It yeah. was different well, before, before you got sinks. here. <laughs> but you anyway. Like a bit of a fool. Mm. Oh, thanks. Ah, <laughs> just, just in front of everyone. Yeah, yeah. It's no big deal. This what about one, you, Jim? Now, classic. My f- This is a friend of mine who did this, but I just can't not share it. Mm. And to this friend... You'll know exactly the story if you listen to this podcast. So hit me up afterwards if you hear this because I'm totally throwing you under the bus. Get the feeling you might lose a friend. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> but this this is one of my favourite days in the job ever. So we were at hospital and we weren't working together. This was a friend of mine from another crew. And we were just sitting around the Ambo Bay whilst our partners were doing paperwork. So we were both driving. Yep. And um, we get approached by a nurse at the hospital with a mannequin on a really old stretcher. And she's like, hey, I'm actually just wondering, can you guys help us out? Because we're doing a, um, oh, like one of those educational sessions for... It's the party program? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so it's like teenage kids and against drink driving and they mm. kind of try to like shock tactics, like don't yeah. do it. Anyway, they're like, can you just roll this mannequin in? And just as if you're doing a recess handover with oh, the mannequin, yeah. yep, yep. you just need to include that they're 17 and that they were drink driving um, and they hit a treat or something. So like make on up Doctor Doctor or yeah, Home and Away, like yeah, they're exactly. getting me to act. Wow. And so this friend of mine, he's a good friend of mine, right? So I've known him for a few years outside of this job. And I went to uni with him. And immediately when she's like, can we do this? I was like, you are giving a handover. Because, and this is me being <laughs> not a good friend. I know that my friend does not do well in scenarios at all. He panics. And I was like, that's it. You're doing it. So this he became a paramedic. Be great. <laughs> No, on road, super On great. road, perfect. Fake scenarios, just uh, like absolutely yes. can't handle That's true. That's something else. So we, we roll in and <laughs> there's like 15 kind of 17, 18 year old kids there. And we roll in. We've got this mannequin. The worst age group too. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Tough exactly. crowd. Tough crowd already. <laughs> exactly. And he starts telling the story and you can just tell he's just cacking himself. And he's like, all right. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, we've got little Jimmy here. Uh, he's 17 years old. He he was um, he was driving the car and he hit a tree and he was ejaculated from the car. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He did, and no one noticed for like at least that first ten seconds. And me, on the other hand, I was like <laughs> <laughs> trying to hold it in, and he went so bright red. Oh and it's when gosh. the teenagers finally realise, and they all start snickering amongst yeah. themselves. Yeah. He's like, "I've lost all credibility." Probably sitting there oh. filming it on their phones. Yeah, exactly. As well, just to... Going viral, like yeah. Didn't but yeah, that's wow. Oh, 
That's, that's a clanger. Yeah. That is a clanger. <laughs> uh, well, look, let's uh, let's jump into it. We've got the debrief, and uh, today we're having a bit of a look at the uh, mechanical CPR devices. And um, look, guys, I don't know about you, but the first time I ever saw a Lucas device on someone, I thought, "Oh my gosh, this monster's killing someone! Let's <laughs> rip it off." <laughs> it's quite confronting. <laughs> so confronting and violent and just um, effective and uh, <laughs> sexy after I realised that, hey, this uh, my limp wrists can now have a little bit of a, a break from all these uh, compressions. <laughs> Take it away, Lucas. It's got a, a few different nicknames, the Lucas. Um, Granny Smasher. Granny <laughs> Smasher. <laughs> oh, it's it bad that my mind immediately went elsewhere with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's even worse. That's yeah, it is confronting to see that the yeah. first time, especially for the family. Granny Basher. Any other ones? Smash it. Um, the Proby 5000. <laughs> oh. <laughs> put it on and yeah, it just, it just does CPR. Going, I know. You remember the first time. It's mm. like, mm. well, <laughs> my first time, the chest never, like, it was like the rock hard chest. Oh, I like had a couple of rib pops something. for me. Ugh. It felt like rice bubbles, like hearing the pop. Oh, oh. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm. Anyway, moving right along. <laughs> Um, no one likes crepit. So these CPR. mechanical CPR devices, so we don't have to feel these um, little clicks and pops. Mm, um, exactly. What do you think, guys? I mean, uh, should they be in every ambulance in Australia, around the world? I mean, obviously that's a have bit ridiculous, guys, but... Yeah, have you guys actually... Yeah, you've done a rest with them? Absolutely. I've done one. Yeah, I've done yeah. a couple, actually. Yeah. And what did you think, Ev? What did you think? I am a big fan of it mm-hmm. because it frees up another set of hands for starters. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, uh, you can extricate the patient a lot quicker yeah. after you've managed the airway mm-hmm. with an advanced airway. So it gets the ball rolling fairly quickly with mm-hmm. cardiac arrest. You can Because routinely it's either stay and play or you load and go, depending yeah. on the scenario. Mm-hmm. With this, you can load and go. And I think it would probably favour the patient better to mm. get to hospital where they have more resources and can look for those reversible causes of cardiac arrest. Mm. Whereas sometimes we can't and we're on scene for such a long time and you run through the protocol and then it's like, well, we're just going to call it on scene. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I've got kind of mixed feelings about calling it on scene, yeah. but with this, yeah, we have an option now. Yeah. And what about you, Carl? What did you think? Well, I've, I've, u- I've used it a couple of times and mm. one time in particular, it kind of um, uh, failed, uh, which mm. was interesting um, yeah. because it's such a big, heavy device and it failed during extrication which is you know the time that you need it i mean generally though in extrication you're unable to perform cpr Mm. um because you know they're on a carry sheet or something that you just can't support it but but this battery yeah Yeah. this battery stopped and then it made all of us stop um you know i was uh, i was a probie at the time but um it was like well this whole arrest now has stopped and we're now trying to figure out this um, Lucas device rather than yeah. continuing on with extrication. Yeah. So it added a bit of a dilemma with the whole scenario. But then in another situation, it was just brilliant. And I think um, Eva might have even been a job with you where we yeah, backed I you up. Was, and, um, and yeah, I didn't have to get... Yeah, and they do, they do fail and sometimes That's they just bad, don't work. If you, if you have patients that are really thin or a little bit on the younger age side, mm. um, then the arm won't actually reach it. That's for the Lucas in yeah. particular. Mm. Um, or alternatively, if the patient's too wide... Yeah, it doesn't fit around them. No, it won't fit around them. And the arm cannot go down, uh, extend down to actually compress the chest properly. Mm. So you have to go manual. Yeah. Mm. So this is, I guess I wonder on that, you know, topic then, what happens if we were to roll them out and then they 
they fail, as you've described, and we all know the basics of doing CPR. Yep. But do you think that that would have a negative impact on our ability to just easily revert back to doing CPR? Or do you think we would be distracted by the idea of, oh, mm. let's, let's troubleshoot, let's troubleshoot, and then they would get a lesser quality of care? Well, I'm, I'm hoping everyone's still keeping up to date with quality CPR and doing regular practice even without it, I think mm. becoming reliant on any machine, and including uh, automatic BP I was actually gonna say cuffs. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you don't know how to take a manual, then I think you've, there's a huge issue right there. Mm. Mm. Well, that's but, the thing when the automatic when the automatic ones fail, you go to manual. Or like if you yeah. get a, re a really low one, I remember nursing, you get a low blood pressure on the machine. Yep. Then you're like, all right, I'll just do a manual. Manual. Yeah. But that's what I yeah because I think I've only done well I think I've only done like one or two with the Lucas as part mm. of the trial. Um, and I did, I found personally that it just made us feel like we could manage the scene better. Yeah. So this was an yeah. arrest that was um, like in a driveway and there were a couple of bystanders. So mm -hmm. it allowed us to just free up that extra person, kind of almost allocate the team leader role a bit more clearly mm. and be able to just, you know, cannulate and manage the airway and focus on those things without having to worry about cycling. Sure. And I thought that was the yeah. biggest benefit. When we started using it in the beginning, um, it was a little bit awkward because you'd walk in and the team's already doing a great job cycling through their CPR yeah. and, and ventilations and all that. And then you have to hold them up to apply the device. Yeah. Now, the more you practice, the quicker it becomes. Yeah. And then it's not such an issue because afterwards, like you said, you're free and you can look at it, you know, mm. the mm. job a, a little bit differently because you've got an extra set of hands now. So, mm. Well, I'll pose this question to you guys then. Um let me tell you guys about a paramedic trial in the UK. So they did this, this paper was published in 2017. And basically they say that they've enrolled 4,471 eligible patients with 985 of them getting mechanical chest compression. And the conclusion here was that there was no evidence of improvement in 30 day survival compared with manual compressions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And there was no survival or survival without disability yeah. that is improved by manual chest compressions. But so is it worth it? Well, is it hard to actually get, I mean, accurate data on a cardiac arrest? You know, because it just depends at what point were they able to get that um, device on the patient um, from the time that they arrested. So if, if they got it on, as soon as that heart stopped and, you know, you put the, the CPR device on mm. um, as and compare that to someone who just arrests and you start doing manual compressions, that's almost what you need to mm. I compare think it is really and study, to, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it takes however long for an ambulance to get to a scene and then uh, like every it's so unique each job i mean i'm not too familiar with statistics and mm. you know well there's multiple different studies. studies that have looked at the different uh automatic cpr devices and varying results yeah but you're right if you i think if you're looking for it's going to fix all the problems in the cardiac mm. arrest then yeah. i think you're mistaken i think it's a big thing uh it's going to improve your compressions because they're consistent mm. um failure does happen it's not a regular thing it, unfortunately yeah. i've seen it a couple of times but yeah. that's just because of usage um but that's why they have to do uh various studies and, and one of the studies uh, just getting on that note mm. um the two cheer trial that was done in new south wales um which looked at uh mechanical compressions done by a lucas um therapeutic hypothermia with iv chilled fluids ecmo and then early reperfusion with pci so that was what it was about that study was done from 2016 to 2018 yeah. um, they yeah. end up having 25 uh, patients that were enrolled into the number. study which yeah. is only a small number yeah. um, but they did find the results at the end of the trial was um, patients 
had a 44% favorable neurological outcome as a result of yeah, right. using those devices compared yeah. to those that didn't. Oh, so yeah. it's not fantastic, but for those people that survived, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because, for example, let's take your study versus the one I've just quoted. Um, the outcomes that they're measuring are different. So it's interesting to see that there is a 40% increase in neurolo- increase, increase, sorry, in yep. neurological outcomes yep. because that wasn't assessed um, in this study. But then to that I add, you know, should, should we be looking when we do these studies not just to get quantitative data in terms of outcomes or, yeah. or this and that, but also qualitative? Mm. What did paramedics think well, in terms of like your, your scene management and your crew resource management? Because sure. I think you can almost well, unanimously say that everyone loves it. I mean, anecdotally... I mean, with no basis whatsoever. But the Lucas <laughs> device, in my opinion, mm. um, the best thing about it is the manual handling side of it, and yep. the the you know improvement to uh, the paramedics, you know, uh, risk of getting hurt while doing CPR whilst Absolutely. driving. You know, yeah. how can you do effective CPR whilst you're driving? It's almost and they impossible. don't. And some of the ambulance services in in Australia will not do cardiac yeah. arrests on the run yeah. to hospital because of that very reason. And, and so, well, that's it. And so, it's interesting. Is it worth like? Do you purely just look at that aspect of whether you get a Lucas device? Mm. I mean, I guess it has to be somewhat effective to be able to install it. But mm. um, but you're also looking at cost, and that's the thing. I mean, well, Lucas. I mean, in particular, so Striker or Physio Controls Lucas mm. as a rough ballpark is about twenty grand, yeah. mm. whereas Zoll's Auto Pulse uh, is around fifteen. Is that the one that wraps around the yeah. person? Yeah. yeah. So some of these are actually being Such used in weird. Australia at the moment. So Victoria and Queensland currently use them they have specific protocols about the wraparound when. ones yeah, yeah. I, I think it does have a place in terms of putting it on every ambulance yeah uh i don't think it's cost effective no mm. that's well, something that, that i think outcome. is really interesting i mean if you put your put your little hat on in terms of i'm the ceo of an ambulance service yeah why would i spend 20 grand times i'm pulling numbers out of my ass 500 ambulances across the state yeah why would i invest that much money when there is no difference in outcome or mm. let's say survivability is less but neurological outcomes yeah. might be slightly better mm. but again 25 people you can't generalize that across well, it's no. not a generalized well, then what you need stuff. to look at is you know how many get how many staff get injured whilst doing cpr compared to how many staff get injured when lifting nana off the floor and yeah. do we spend 20 grand and fit out 80 ambulances with a lucas device or do we spend three and a half grand on an elk device that will save that you know cost yeah. to, to manual handling exactly so, well so a big part a, yeah. big part of that just on that note was reporting we were under-reporting yeah. our injuries, and mm. if we don't report them, then there's no problem. Changes. They're yeah. not going to fix it. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, hey, I all I am all for the. Lucas. I know, so am I. Let's <laughs> get it. I want it. <laughs> it's just impressive to walk like, in and pop pop yeah. it on because oh, everyone's like, "What is that?" Yeah. But I have to say, something I do find something I do find interesting is that, for example, on the Lucas website, they don't actually like their selling point is not we get better outcomes with it. Their selling point is that we improve the quality of chest compressions, increase end mm. tidal CO two levels. Um, as well as like sustaining that quality compression, which again, interesting. I think that they are all completely valid points, Um, but they don't even try to say we improve outcomes because I think it's almost well recognized in the current literature that that's not the case. There you go. Interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, if we, if every ambulance could have a, a Lucas device and if they're free and if some trillionaire, is it <laughs> and the Amazon guy is the new trillionaire oh, or soon to be? Need him to have a cardiac gosh. arrest, is that what I you're saw, implying? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay. He's the, is he Amazon? Amazon, yeah. yeah I, I did see name, that. Anyway. He's look, the world's first trillionaire. If you're listening, yes. mate, um, would love a, uh, <laughs> a Lucas device on you every ambulance. You could donate just a tiny smidge <laughs> of we your We swear we'll put your name on it yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Into our next topic though, guys, um, communication within our teams and within the paramedic practice. Uh, Jen, what's your thoughts in terms of uh, 
do we effectively communicate uh, with each other on jobs well or mm. is there more room for improvement? Yeah. Communication is one of my little babies, I think. I think that, like, knowing me, I'm literally the human version of an air horn. I talk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and talk loudly. <laughs> I just walk into a room and just... <laughs> no. Um, but I think, I don't know, I find it really interesting because I've worked with some people who are great communicators mm. and I really love working with them. Um, but I have worked with people that are terrible communicators mm. and I kind of, some of these people have been in the job a while. Some of these people are quite new. Can I ask, how do you help the people that have been in the job a while who you don't feel are good communicators and you're both on the same kind of rank or level? Well, that's what I want. How, how do you do that? Yeah. I have done jobs with some people who I go in and I'm like, Oh, like the patient's not giving a good history because you're not asking clear questions mm. and you're not communicating effectively. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I might do something like an intervention or something because I think that's what's appropriate or necessary, not because that paramedic has communicated yeah. what they want to me. And you don't want to go over the top of them either and like over treat no. over the top of them. Yeah. Um, but how can you like, but I think it's a skill. It's so interesting because I think it's something that like, here's me tooting my own horn, but I think that I've grown up with, um, I'm a reasonably, I'm an extrovert. I, I like talking to people and I've spoken to people my whole life. Mm. But I think that for some people, it's just not a natural skill. So yeah. do we teach it or, or is it just a, you're a paramedic, therefore you must be a good communicator? What do you think, Ed? I Yeah, yeah tough one. <laughs> you, you have to be a, a very effective communicator in this job. You just have to be. You cannot get away with, you know, being a poor talker. And that's not just to patients. That's also amongst your crew yeah. and your partner, especially yeah. your partner. Yeah. Um, you hear all these little stories all the time of like, you know, someone will have an issue with their partner because they go through and take some observations but then don't turn around and go, oh, yeah, by the way, I just found that the patient was yeah. hypertensive or bradycardic. It's yeah. like this guessing game of going, what, what, mm. what are you finding over there? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I put to you this, though, if you're a, a sick patient and you're dying or you're hypertensive and bradycardic, would you want uh, a good communicator who's really good at saying every, everything and you know speaking their mind and what they see or would you want a really good clinician that kind of is a bit of a hermit and... See, I, I mean, maybe this is me, but I feel like I associate a good clinician with a good communicator. Yeah, I yeah, think that true. to be, yeah, to yeah. be yeah. I mean, that's... in my mind, to be a good clinician, part of that should be being a good communicator. Because mm. at the end of the day, yes, we we perform, we can perform life-saving interventions. But I think that our role yeah. is to serve the community in the out-of-hospital setting and to provide reassurance yeah. and to answer the questions and kind of do a lot of that. And that, yes, it's easy to do CPR and run an arrest on a patient mm. and talk what, and mm. say whatever you want to because, you know, they, they hopefully are not listening. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for those nanas that fall over or it's a bit of a social situation or something, yes. that's as much as part of our job as doing an arrest. Interesting. Yep. And it's really interesting that you bring that up because I worked with someone um, when I was a trainee and my partner was a, a, a qualified paramedic. However, they just qualified. Um, so they're quite young. They hadn't had much experience beforehand. And I'm not saying that I do. Definitely don't. Um, but <laughs> Just pull um, yourself down, down The interesting thing that I noted that when we went to an elderly person that fell over, um, their stance was, right, uh, this isn't good enough. You need, to, um, you need to move into a nursing home. You just can't live here. It's your you know, second fall in a week. You need to find yourself a nursing home. And I was just like... <laughs> Oh, oh, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. let's go step I've by worked. step. I must admit, I've done that before as well. Um, where, and it's almost selfish from me because it's like, come on, guys, you're being selfish. 
Yeah, living in this big ass home yeah. with uh, no equipment to support yourself. You need to move into a nursing <laughs> or, or home. Or me as there. a paramedic. Yeah. You know, yeah. making my job harder. But thankfully, my partner pulled me into line and said, hang on. Yeah. Yeah. It's I think, well, you, you, like I said, you still have to be an effective communicator, regardless of what was wrong with the patient or their issue, because a whole job can go to pot just through mm. poor communication. Absolutely. Mm. You don't have an active team leader or a, a team leader who's verbalising what they're saying and mm. so everyone's sort of sitting there scratching their heads going, what, what now? What mm. do we do now? And especially when that person is meant to be the leader and the higher clinical officer mm. as well. How do you... Ev, <laughs> how do I? <laughs> but I? I guess, you know, how do you escalate concerns being the junior to a senior and then how do you effectively communicate as a senior to a junior because I know for once when I was a probie I went with a, a reasonably um, experienced and perhaps borderline jaded paramedic to a job that was a anaphylaxis and the guy like you know kind of wasn't dying but was not well mm. um, and I just felt as though this paramedic was really doing the bare minimum, right? Mm. So he's given an IM and he's walking the patient up to the stretcher, got him on the stretcher and like no cardiac monitor. Yeah, like <laughs> eyebrows no raised. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like straight away. It is by and this was not my regular partner either. So yep. this was like, a, I don't know, we were swapped yep. or whatever. And um, I really, I, I, stru- I was watching this and I was going, oh, like this makes me super uncomfortable. And then I ended up kind of going, oh, I think we should put a, a the ACG on. Mm. And he's like, no, his chest pain's not because he's got, he's having an ischemic event. In my head, I'm like, I thank you, Captain Obvious, I'm aware. <laughs> but it was just like a, uh, you've gone and given IM adrenaline, like it's not yeah. hard, just put the friggin' yeah. dots on. Yeah, and so yeah. in the end, what I ended up doing was just getting the dots out and I was like, yeah. I'll do it, it's fine. And yeah. I was just kind of being yeah. the overly keen probie, but in my head, I'm like, just do better. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be just lift your game. Better. Right? Yeah. yeah, and that's true. I think the most simplest solution is usually the right one if if you have an issue with someone and it is about communication you need to let them know because there is every chance that that person doesn't realize that they're doing that particular thing yeah so you do have to sort of uh, look like, i'm not sure issue. if you've realized that the uh the pulse is now 25 yeah. i'm just putting it out there yeah. you can make the decision <laughs> now that, that uh, does happen yeah and i think we've all seen it to a degree of yeah. that kind of like um are you going to do something about that mm. vf like yeah. honestly yeah. Cool. yeah i actually watched a really interesting video example. i mean <laughs> okay once <laughs> and it wasn't me <laughs> no i watched a really interesting video this is slightly off topic it was about crew uh i want to say crew resource management but it's about um a pilot whose wife in the UK died as a result of just a, a like a regular surgery, right? Because the anaesthetists weren't kind of escalating or yeah. recognizing the severity yes. of the yeah. situation. Something and again, the nurses, pardon, the nurses in the room were the they ones recognized that were it, but they couldn't. Yeah. They didn't. I think the at, at the end they didn't feel like they could escalate it was over place the to talk. But isn't that interesting? Yeah. We need to go. How do how do you escalate that effectively? And if you're a poor communicator that you can barely even talk to a patient, mm. how do you do that? How do mm. you escalate safety concerns? Mm. Yeah. Suggestions. Oh. Hit me. You've just got to keep talking. Yeah. And you've got to raise those issues with the people and say, look, I've I've, I've found a bit of an issue with this. Mm. We need to address it. Yeah. If, uh, if we can't, then we'll get someone else to do it. If if that's what it takes. Well, mm. and if you're not the treating officer, you can be like, oh, look, I've. I found that this really works for me when I put the um, 12 lead ECG on a chest pain person. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> we mm. find out if they're having a stamina. I mean, yeah. but that, that type of <laughs> questioning though. Yeah, no, 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 but like the, um, oh, you know, like this has worked for me. Mm. I don't, don't know. Make my, it w- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you have to work with the person for an extended period of time. You, mm. 
when it really comes to sour things. that relationship. Yeah. Mm. Sometimes I think that yeah, we we should elevate the idea of communication even in our everyday stuff. Yeah. In terms of if we debrief after jobs, but I mean, yeah. you rarely debrief. What well, I find, I rarely debrief with partners who are the same clinical level as me. Right. I'd often. Oh no no no. No, Sorry, I was going to say on. I often debrief with um. You know, if I've got a probie or someone or yep. if we've done a big job and there's a few people yeah. on scene and you'll debrief, but maybe we should make it part of our regular, um, you know, systems and programming Absolutely. that we do debrief and, and talk about and communication. And Jen, we are debriefing right now here on Rambling Ends. Yes. This is <laughs> the debrief, <laughs> debrief <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. And uh, on that note, uh, great discussion, guys. We'll be right back with the uh, clinical corner. Um, we've actually got Bob Oakley uh, standing by to go live with the latest ambulancing news. So we'll cross to him in just a moment. But after that, the clinical corner. Oakley and this is Ambulancing News. A COVID update first and American President Donald Trump confuses reporters stating that he has tested positive to coronavirus in a negative way. And I tested very positively in a in another sense. So negative. this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So no, I tested uh, perfectly this morning. And staying in America now, and whilst frontline healthcare workers have been working tirelessly to defeat COVID-19, televangelist Kenneth Copeman has also tried to chip in by blowing the virus away. COVID-19! COVID-19! I blow the wind of God, the wind of God. on you. To local news, an 86-year-old female has fallen in her bathroom, sustaining a neck of femur fracture whilst trying to get to the toilet. She has now become the country's 823rd patient to sustain such an injury, prompting an urgent warning from authorities. It's to remind the elderly to use a walker when mobilising, especially if they're already unsteady. However, they are realistic and believe the advice simply will not be followed. To some exciting news now, and paramedics in one of Australia's most rural locations have celebrated a milestone achievement, a record 52 weeks without a job. A skinner is now no longer referred to as a week or a month, but indeed now a year. And to the weather, a comfortable 23 degrees in the city, a scorching 45 degrees out west. My name's Bob Oakley and this is Ambulancing News. Well, thank you, Bob. And um, gosh, how lucky are we to have a brand new uh, news studio <laughs> accompanying to our current studio here, guys. This is a pretty pretty high-level technological yeah, situation absolutely. we have here. Studio. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome, everyone, to the uh, clinical corner. Today, we've got a case conundrum, uh, which Ev is providing to us. Um, Ev, take it away, mate. Thanks, Carl. Okay, um, the clinical corner case uh, today is going to be about professional practice. Oh, well, Carl, you can't answer this one. Oh, no. <laughs> <I'll>, uh, <laughs> microphone. 
And he's Getting out. him back. He's <laughs> oh, he's back. Uh. Okay. More specifically, it's about informed consent, capacity, and competency, which mm-hmm. is something competency uh, of us as paramedics, or just about the patient. Okay. okay cool. Specifically about the patient. Now, yeah. this is actually in light of a tweet that I saw recently, and it got my attention. Now, it's from a Ryan Marino, a doctor. Um, mm-hmm. Who's basically written? I've been called a lot of names and accused of a lot of things by ER patients, but it's surreal to have a patient accuse me of falsifying their COVID results because they don't believe that the virus is real, as I'm actively trying to keep them from dying from multi organ failure from COVID. So, uh, right. is, he, question is he also is, a flat earther that wears a tinfoil hat? Because, mm. uh, anyway, the patient yeah. or the doctor? Because yeah. I, I think the doctor's pretty sound minded. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it raises the question. Now, say hypothetically, if we put this pre-hospitally, what happens if we uh, were sent to a patient's house um, as a result of a doctor getting a result back to say that the patient was COVID positive and you rock up on their doorstep to say, hey, we've just got the results back. This does happen. It's usually other uh, blood yeah. results. I'm sure you've both mm-hmm. done one of these, usually electrolyte imbalance yep. or... And it's like 2 a.m. in the morning, they have yeah, no idea Yeah, knock on the door, surprise, you're coming <laughs> with us. Um, yeah, um, just hypothetically, if you went to a job like that and you had to uh, take a patient to hospital uh, mm. because they were a positive COVID, but then they've turned around and said, well, I don't believe in COVID. Do they uh. make... Do they reach competency and capacity? Now, something that our ambulance service in particular is looking at with a decision to... Uh, whether How to establish whether a patient has competency is whether they are able to... Uh, retain uh receive believe retain and explain the information that you're Mm. giving them Mm. and part of that is believing do they actually believe what you're telling them is to be the truth see this is a weird one though because i feel like i mean pick any disease right and come up and say you have hiv no i don't it doesn't exist well it does it's Mm. in your blood test you're right it can be an example but yeah yeah, yeah. no 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 no, no. and i totally agree but i think that just because someone chooses not to believe it doesn't mean that it's not true. But yeah, it's interesting when you kind of go, well, what's, uh, well, what's there? Uh, uh, I mean, it, it would be more sticky if there was a mental health patient and um, they've been scheduled by a doctor and they must come to hospital because they're deteriorating and they're like, well, no, I don't believe in schizophrenia. Yeah. I've I actually mean, encountered one of those patients yeah, and we did uh, actually schedule them under the Mental Health Act and took it because they lacked insight into their own mental health yeah. at that point in time. Yeah. Mm. And it was because they were deteriorating. But quite. with a with a COVID job though in particular, I mean, if someone doesn't want to go to hospital, um, even if they test positive to COVID, you're there to take them to hospital. What, why do they need to go to hospital? Um, yeah. Who's saying that they have to go to hospital and... Don't they have but the right wonder, to decline? But then I wonder, does that have greater implications in terms of the public health order? So if you have, if you test positive to COVID, there is a public health, or in Australia at least, there's a public health order right. that you must um, isolate, you know, for, mm. uh, I, I'm going to get this maybe slightly wrong, but you have to isolate for 10 days um, and you have to have not had symptoms for 72 hours before you can come out of isolation. So that's the rules with COVID as a general layperson in, in society now. Right. So if you don't believe that you don't have COVID, then how does that play into, well, I'm not going to isolate because I don't have it. And so then, you yeah. know, yeah, you, you, absolutely. You, when you look at the medical history and, and test results and diagnostics and stuff and you go, no, you, you do have it. Mm. In fact, this is what the blood test says. Mm. 
But then, yeah, if you choose not to believe it, I don't think that that will stand up in a court of law, for example, just because you choose to believe it or not doesn't change Mm. Um, the, the impact the that yeah exactly doesn't change yeah. the truth and just for argument's sake on that Carl this this patient hypothetically that you're going to this doesn't have me- any mental health issues yeah, so yeah. it's not going to make it easy for you to go haha <laughs> I'll get yeah. you on that ground so this oh, person might be a oh, very gosh. sound man of mind they've proven themselves well I think in that case I'd have to um, I mean if they're able to you know state what day it is and they're alert mm. and they're orientated and they can make informed health you know informed decisions regarding their health care if you're choosing not to believe that COVID's around, and there's a lot of those people, mm. a lot of those people mm. um, in just, America. Just not pretend here. You, <laughs> <laughs> say, just pretend you're working in the US. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can't, I wouldn't imagine, unless you had an, the public health order, mm. um, I would imagine that you'd have to be like, okay, well, we can't take you in yet. It would have to be get, contact the public health unit, mm. get the order, get police, and then yeah. go and take them in if they had to go in. But... It's a weird, I think the whole idea of, yeah, just because you choose not to believe something, you can still assess someone's competency based on a whole bunch of other factors, Mm. right? So um, controversial, I'm going to say it. There's people who believe autism is caused by vaccines. Like Mm. I think that that Mm. is ridiculous from my personal opinion. Um, But, you know, just because they think that doesn't mean that they have any less competency yeah. or capacity to be able to consent Make to other xyz decisions. other things however in this case the patient like you said is infectious highly mm. infectious and could infect more people around them including their own families yeah and you know if i don't believe what you're going to say why the hell would i isolate i'm going yeah. to the shops actually but i guess i wonder oh, oh well then i think that becomes a police I mean, matter no, doesn't no, it? I'm just <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> Hopefully they're Getting not behind bars yeah. quick. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think that's interesting because I think as Australia we have quite a um I want to say a, a forward-thinking progressive government in yeah. that they have you know you can get around this, okay, because you have to have someone who gives free voluntary informed consent to be able to take them to hospital, right? We can't schedule a patient who just doesn't believe COVID is real. Mm. Um and then you know, we have a public health order which mitigates that problem. But in the US, again, like everything that I kind of hear about or read about here is people are so, like they so strongly believe in their right to freedom Mm. that a public health order I don't think would work in the US as well as it has worked here to keep people inside. Yeah. Let me pose it as another question. Would you feel safe sectioning this patient under the Mental Health Act to take them to hospital against their will on that grounds alone? I don't think so. No. I personally wouldn't. No. Um, I mean, uh, hypothetically, because this is all very much a hypothetical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is an uh, actual case. Obviously, yeah. the doctor has, you yeah. know, in that scenario, mm. his patient is refusing to believe that the virus even exists. And but it's, it's not an order. It's just a, it's the doctor's advice almost though, isn't it? That you need to go to hospital. It's not. But if we're looking, for example, if, the, if we go back to the in-hospital context, yeah. you would still treat the patient for multi-system organ failure, True. regardless yeah. of whether or not they, what they yeah. believe the cause Absolutely. to be. Absolutely. Well, it really opens a can of worms, doesn't it? I mean, because if you go into competency and capacity further, what about um, if you go to a child that's, you know, suffering from blood loss, uh, oh, but the parents make me really uncomfortable. The parents um, don't want a blood transfusion when the medical team gets there, mm. and it's going to be a life-saving um, advice. I mean, you, normally oh. those those kind of things you've seen them play out in the courts in the hospital settings. Mm. But what about pre-hospital care? I actually don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah. Genuinely, yeah, I feel like 
uh, I'm trying to think of our protocols. Call a supervisor. Of, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Escalate up. Make it someone else's Somebody responsibility. Else. Yeah. No, yeah. I think in ours in terms of, yeah, you can but, you can give life, life-saving intervention to a, a child whose mm. parent isn't there. Yes, but if they are there and they're saying, no, this I don't want my son or daughter to receive, you know, a blood product and in this situation it is, you know, time is life or death. Yeah. Normally, you know, if they're in a hospital and they're in the, you know, uh, one of the wards and you see them go through the courts and the magistrate actually makes that final decision saying, yes, this child will receive it despite... Yeah, this is very much they do end up in court a lot of those cases. Mm. Yes, but what what happens if you don't have time for court? I have a solution. You stab the parent because then oh, they become unconscious. That escalated. <laughs> we do not incite <laughs> violence on so this podcast. So then they're podcast. unconscious you, and then they Genevieve. can't give consent to life-saving treatment. So you can do both of them. Oh, I just don't think that will fly. The, the Foolproof. If, if we go back to that scenario, the parents are saying they don't want the treatment based on a religious belief. Let's assume. Yeah. So, so we're yes, coming back to the yeah. belief yep. or believing. Mm. But they so still have they, yeah, ooh, but they still have the right to refuse. Like you, you, you get in there, it's a car accident, and they're, they're they're unconscious. The child is, the mum's mm. there. Mm. She's like, I think at the end of the you day, you get the blood product out. Mum's like, no, yeah, and you're like, yes, implied the, consent from the child. And children as, as as young as fourteen have actually won the right to their own medical yeah. treatment in courts of law. Mm. There are cases of that. Could I be a bit of a dick and say thirteen? The patient's 13. Well, let's go eight. Let's make it a clear... <laughs> All like, right, like, okay, we'll go eight. Yeah. Difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, what? I would still do it. You have a yeah, duty of care to your patients and religious beliefs. Uh, this is for me personally. That yeah. doesn't doesn't weigh much it's interesting, for me. Isn't because, it's a bit of a hot topic. Yeah. Would it be... What, what, ah. what about the type of religion then? Oh, well, look, I mean... Uh, yeah, if you're like a Star Wars monster. fan. Yeah, exactly. I'm one of those colanders on the head yeah. type. Yeah. But yeah. at the end of the day, what difference does it make what informs your decision to give or not give consent? That's a, It's similar to, let's say you go to a STEMI patient and you go, you're going to die if I don't provide this intervention. And they go, I'm, I understand the risks. Mm. I accept them. I refuse treatment. I, I know I, I've heard of yes, stories of people yeah. scheduling these patients because mm. they say that's not what a reasonable can, person would it's, do. It's not but something I don't agree that with that you either. can schedule someone no. for. But that, it doesn't matter what your belief is, you someone can still refuse consent. Mm. Uh, refuse to give consent, sorry. Mm. Mm. Just on that note yes. about a STEMI and the patient refuses to believe it, mm. um, a little case from to believe they're having yeah, yeah. yeah hard. Um, one of my mates down in uh, Victoria went to a patient who was having a STEMI, and the patient just flat out refused. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Yeah. Didn't really give any valid reason. Just mm-hmm. simply just didn't want to go. Housemate came home, said, "What's going on here?" I'll try and convince him. All the rest of it. They said, "Look, he he needs to go. He is going to arrest. He is going to die. You need to really sell that mm. to him." And he said, "Give me a moment. Step out. And we'll have a chat." And he goes, "Okay." And all of a sudden, he's come back and he's he's gone. And he's like, oh, he's gone into cardiac arrest. And he goes, no, no, he jumped out the window. <laughs> and it was a second story, like, unit oh. block. So then they looked out the window and there he's in the car park with two broken legs. Oh. Guess where he went? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to hospital and, uh, and two broken legs. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness. That makes goodness. the job much more complicated, doesn't well, it? Can we schedule simple. him then? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but Have actually, I had, a, I had a, this was a really sticky case for me. I had one, it was supposed to be just a transfer, right, from um, a rehab hospital back to their treating hospital. This was a guy who had, I want to say, cerebral palsy and had had a suicide attempt uh, a month or two ago. Um, 
and had injured himself but hadn't um, obviously succeeded. Mm-hmm. And so he'd been taken to hospital, had been treated in a hospital and then was discharged to this rehab place. Now this rehab place is also a palliative hospital, has heaps of oldies, right, and he's the only guy that's like 21 years old. Right. Um, and as- essentially he doesn't want to be there, mm. right? He doesn't want to be there. Yep. He wants to go home. And his mum is there and um, she's saying, yep, we want to go home, we want to go home. And the treating doctor has said, you cannot go home. We're transporting you back to hospital because you don't demonstrate the capacity to be able to give informed consent to a decision or not. And I've gone, hang on a second, what's the thinking around this? So Mm. we've kind of had this discussion. It was a really, I really, this case made me quite uncomfortable. Um, The thinking was basically from the doctor's perspective that the patient had tried to commit suicide and and they still and the rehab place hadn't completed all of their cognitive testing. Yeah. And so their argument was that because we haven't completed the cognitive testing, we can't determine if he has the full capacity to understand mm. the risks of and therefore discharge himself home. And mm. their solution was to have him transported back to hospital. Right. But I've walked in and I've gone I have a patient here who is refusing to go to hospital. Mm. Right, he just wants to go home. He's refusing to go to hospital. He's able to retain, um, receive, believe, retain, explain all of the information. Yep. Um, has someone with him who is willing to take him home. And how, where do I stand? Does, did he have a power of attorney or a legal guardian? No, he was his own. He was his own. He okay. was his own. Yep. He had enough capacity to be able to. Yep. His communication obviously was slightly impaired, but he still had the capacity. Yep. And so, I was of the stance in a way that I was going, whatever this doctor says. I don't care because at the end of the day, the patient has the right to refuse transport or treatment. But my partner just kind of wanted to please everyone and yep. the, the yep. conclusion we came to was we'll transport this patient to hospital and we've told him that if you choose to leave hospital or leave at any point, we're not going to stop you and okay. there's no one stopping you. So that so doctor in that facility, mm-hmm. he hadn't done a mental health assessment on this patient though? Um, no, because yeah. it wasn't their role either. But I also right. argue that just because you've been suicidal once doesn't mean that you are at risk of, well, I mean, you might be slightly at risk, but it doesn't mean you're inherently suicidal at the time of Oh, so transport. this wasn't recently that he tried to... So he tried to um, commit suicide about a month before. Ah. And mm. so this was now like a month or two a bit later. Of cause and effect, take him out of that environment and he won't be I, suicidal. I, I know, I the whole thing. But that. in that, what do you guys think about that situation? If you haven't been tested... To, to the extent that you can give capacity, therefore, do you have the right to well, give capacity? Then I think oh, sorry, competency, whatever. You'd, you'd transport, I guess, if that was the case. It's if against their will. They don't want to go. If this wasn't an hour beforehand. Oh. This was a month beforehand. Mm. Mm-hmm. A lot can change in that month. Yeah. Mm. And all you're doing, if you section the patient, is taking him to a mental health capable Mm. emergency department but um who will just assess him and make their own mind up anyway but this is less about the i guess less about the suicide risk as opposed Mm. to someone's ability his capacity to yeah yeah. and what so he says to you i don't want to go and the doctor says he has to go what do you guys do Uh, he's under a section he doesn't he's not under a section well he doesn't he doesn't have to do anything then that was my argument yeah Mm. Yes, but it's hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, hang on I'll a second. I'll, I'm going to sit on the other side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess gotcha. you know, Difficult. you know, competency and capacity should be black and white, but quite clearly, it's quite a grey area when it comes down to those, perhaps 
frantic minutes of a, of a recess or something like oh, yeah, that. Exactly. So it's interesting in that sense. And this but, one um, we had time to kind of nut yeah. out the, the problem. But like you said, when you've got an eight-year-old whose yeah. parents are Jehovah's yeah. Witness and they don't want a blood transfusion, oh, what do you do? Panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just panic. Call somebody, anybody, yeah. Yeah. and panic. Well, look, guys, that's all we've got time for today on Rambling Ambos. Ev, thanks for the uh, case conundrum there. You're welcome. Thanks, Anytime, Carl. And uh, I think it's important uh, we have broached the subject of suicide today. So if that stirred any feelings or emotions within you, please reach out to a friend or a colleague or you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Uh, but we'll end on a positive note and it's that time of the show where we'll play out to our favourite emergency driving songs. And um, Ev, it's your turn. It's uh, coming around to you. Mate, this is a bit of a cruising song. It's when, uh, yeah, you're just trying to get in the vibe, get in the mood. It's Katie not too Perry. aggressive. It's not too... <laughs> It's not too soft. It's called To Get Down Pink. by Tim O'Mass. Uh, and it's from uh, the Italian job. To Get Down by Tim O'Mass. Right. Jump up, jump That's up, to get down. down. Is that You'll the... No, am I no, wrong, wrong one, wrong I don't one. Know. <laughs> but anyway, guys, You'll like it, trust yeah, okay. me. Jen, thank you so much. Thank you. And Ev, thank you. Thank you, Carl. We'll see you next time, guys. Goodbye. What goes around just goes around.